This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Mexico, Mexico City specifically. Eric Martin is there, Latin America government and economy reporter for Bloomberg. He's got a nice scoop on the terminal today. It's all about Jared Kushner and money and Central America, which has been really a point of contention, it feels like, for this administration. Uh, Eric joins us on the phone from our bureau there. Eric, nice to talk to you. Jason, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's our pleasure. So tell us what's going on here, Mr. Kushner, trying to get some money sort of flowing that has not been for a lot of political reasons, it feels like. Well, that's right. The approach of this administration to development has largely been trying to get private investment to help finance development, particularly in Central America. We've seen uh, OPIC, the Office of Pri- the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, that's also been involved, was involved early in the Lopez Obrador administration after he became president in Mexico. Uh, and there's been OPIC involvement here. Um, but one of the biggest challenges that you have here is that companies don't feel a lot of security to invest in some of the most insecure countries in the world. So... What's interesting, though, is pairing private investment with U.S. aid. Is that okay to do that? Well, it certainly is a new approach. Uh, It's something that we've seen uh, that President Trump uh, had previously put the aid for the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador on hold. And he's really questioned the past U.S aid model in terms of uh, the way that USAID and, uh, and other, uh, other parts of the government and State Department and groups uh, finance development and aid to some of these countries. Uh, but, uh, but it's something that, that's untested in terms of how much the private sector and private equity will really want to uh, invest in countries that have significant uh, rule of law problems, some of the highest murder rates in the world in the case of, of Honduras and, and El Salvador as well. And so, uh, you know, so it's a real question as to whether this strategy can be successful. So we're kind of, though, saying if the U.S. is going to help out, there also has to be some private money at stake as well. Is that kind of where the policy is shifting towards? That, that's absolutely correct. Uh, we've seen the reorganization of OPIC uh, in the last year. Uh, and the reorganization of, uh, of U.S. development aid overall to try to make it more investment-based, uh, you know, I mean, might be a, a more typical uh, policy of uh, or philosophy of Republicans in general, but in terms of looking for private sector rather than public sector solutions to some of these problems. And obviously, uh, Eric, and I think you alluded to this, I mean, immigration is tied up in, in all of this. And Jared Kushner, it sounds like from your reporting, has separately been working on that issue. Tie those, <clears throat> excuse me, tie those together for us. Absolutely. Jared Kushner has been one of the most important envoys from the Trump administration to Mexico. We saw him here having dinner with President Lopez Obrador uh, last year, and we understand that one of the main messages that he's delivered consistently since President Lopez Obrador's election, as well as during the campaign, was that Mexico needed to do more to stop undocumented migrants from Central America. Now, what we've seen uh, with 
the Mexican government deploying its new National Guard, a new federal force that was created just last year, originally to tackle domestic security problems. As we've seen them deployed on the southern border of Guatemala, we've seen a significant drop in terms of undocumented uh, apprehensions uh, on the U.S. border with Mexico which is generally a proxy for, uh, for migration overall. So we've seen about a 70% drop since last May in the latest numbers. And so the strategy of trying to uh, find enforcement ways to discourage people from coming from Central America, uh, trying to cross through Mexico to the U.S., seems to have set, um, had some effect. The question is uh, how long-term sustainable is this? Well, and I feel like, Eric, this is a great like debate topic for kids in high school where it's like, okay, should U.S. foreign aid be, you know, just good on its own, right? right. And, and out there for a mission to help maybe a struggling country and a struggling ally versus, wait. Strings attached. Right. <laughs> strings attached. And should U.S. foreign aid, you know, be money well spent? Let's put it that way. And it's also trying to, to strike a balance between carrots and sticks in terms of, uh, you know, we want development, the long-term, uh, U.S. government wants development, and the long-term solution to the migration problem in these countries is to create robust economies where people have opportunities to work safely and they don't have the desire or the need to leave. Uh, but they're facing all kinds of problems, uh, food famine, uh, is one uh, that uh, food shortage is one that's been uh, increasingly prevalent in terms of uh, climate change. Uh, and, and so that's another challenge. And so some of these push factors that are leading people to leave are the things that this is trying to address. Uh, but there will always be the pull factor of potential employment in the U.S., salaries that are much higher, communities that may potentially be safer. And so, uh, so it's a difficult, uh, difficult problem to try to, yeah. uh, to fix in a, in a really deep way. All right, Eric Martin, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Latin American government and economy reporter for Bloomberg joining us uh, on the phone from Mexico City. We have a bureau there uh, as well. That's great scoop. I mean, and it really is at the heart as we discuss. You know, there's so many issues that sort of fit into that sort of Venn diagram in a lot of ways. It's obviously private capital. Right. It's public aid. It's immigration. It's politics. It's neighbors. It's trade. It's all of those things. Uh, our team does a great job down there. And uh, this was a scoop by Eric Justin Sink and Saleha Mosin. You know, so obviously you sort of see all, yeah, the, uh, like all the pieces, all, right? All the pieces of our empire sort of uh, working hard on them. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Liz Capel McCormick, she's Bond and FX reporter here at Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from New Jersey. I loved it. Who'd have thunk that, uh, leave it to you, Liz, to make a connection between what's going on with Apple yesterday, their revenue disappointment, uh, dragged down the stock, dragged down the equity markets for a while as well. Uh, but you tie it into the yield curve. Tell us a little bit more about this. Right, not too often uh, the bond walks like us get to say <laughs> Apple and yield curve. But, I mean, it's like uh, many people have said, when Apple speaks, people listen. And, of course, True. we've all been concerned about the virus and um, it, it's spreading. But when Apple says their revenue might, you know, not come in at, at guidance, that really woke people up. And like you said, yesterday the stocks, you know, really took a tumble. And for the bond market, which has kind of had this um, – Forward demand, even when, you know, before the Apple message, uh, when stocks kind of rebound from the worst of it, because the, the bond market just still very weary that this, this potential hit to China growth and the knock-on to global and the U.S. Is, is just creating new headwinds and that, you know, we just might see growth still lag and inflation lag. So there you go, bond yields lower and the curve just 
reflattening, like you mentioned. And so, Liz, is this, does this feel like a blip, a reset, a harbinger? Like, when you see a, a stock of this magnitude or a stock of this importance, you know, start to have this effect, is this a commentary on the power of that stock and that company? Or is it a commentary on the market and where it may be going next? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm no stock guru, but somebody was saying, you know, maybe this is what Apple smartly does is kind of manages expectations. So that might be, you know, part of what they do. But but it kind of gets to, which even Chair Powell and everyone has talked about, it's supply chain. How, how can this virus and shutdowns in China affect things? I mean, I, I went to buy a couch the other day. I won't say from where. <laughs> and they said, well, it might be delayed because it's coming out from China. You know, it's, yeah. there's so many w- wrinkles of not knowing where you think this is connected that it's hitting. So I think whereas Apple is recovering, it is a warning that we, we just don't know how bad this is going to go. And you see that from a lot of, you know, smart folks saying, you, you can give some estimates of how we think growth is being hit now, but we just don't know where this goes, right? right. What I love about it, Liz, it's a reminder of the sensitivity of financial markets given the right you know, uh, factor. Uh, and that's just a reminder that things can change very quickly in terms of the sentiment of the market, sentiment of investors, and, and, and everyone's outlook on things. And I thought that was really – and they can come from anywhere. Who would have thought, like you said, right. that connection between Apple and the yield curve? Right. All right. Thank you so much, Liz Capo, McCormick Bondin, FX reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New Jersey, making a connection that maybe we didn't see coming. It's just sort of like, I, I feel like in the, the mini Venn, black swan. Well, no, I was going to say in the Venn diagram of like things Carol Masser is interested in, like this, <laughs> this checks out, as the kids say. Because I love, like it, it is, it's a reminder that these things can come from strange places, but it affects the financial markets, right? And that's when we start to pay attention. Um, I just, I love these kind of connections. There's room it up for two, That'll make sense in a second. Uh, this story in this week's Bloomberg Business Week, it's on newsstands, or will be on newsstands. Um, actually, it's on newsstands right now it as is. we speak, and it's online and at Bloomberg.com. It's about Tesla's next big challenge, and we're talking about solar roofs. Bloomberg technology reporter and the person we go to when we want to know anything about Tesla is Dana Hull. She joins us uh, on the phone from San Francisco. Also with us is Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's in our interactive broker studio. So, Dana, we know Elon Musk um, has his hands in a lot of pots. We know he's definitely in the world of solar energy. What's the latest thing that he's up to? Well, I think that the big news is that this is no longer vaporware. I mean, remember when Musk first unveiled the solar roof in the fall of 2016, right before Tesla was acquiring Solar City? People thought, you know, this is a fake product. They're mm-hmm. never going to make this. There's not a market for this. And lo and behold, the first customers in California have them. And I went out to a family's home in San Ramon that got one of the latest roofs. And I mean, they love it. They are overjoyed. Their neighbors are coming to look at it. You know, this, this is a family that's sort of all in on the Tesla product line. But I think it shows that there is a market for this roof. It may be a small niche market, but one does exist. So, Dana, one of the challenges with the solar roofs is actually been like getting them onto roofs, right? So what what's happened on the Tesla front to allow, uh, you know, that, that problem to sort of, uh, you know, be remedied or, or, or at least seemingly at the moment? Yeah, so the roof that's 
now up there it's it's sort of version three. I think that Tesla, you know, tried very hard to cut costs and bring down the costs of installation. So the tiles are slightly bigger than they were before. And I think a big challenge that the company still faces is just installation time. I mean, this family that's very thrilled with their roof told me that it took the crew six days to tear off the old roof and 17 days to install the new one. That's a long time. Like, if you've ever bought a house and gotten a roof done, I mean, an average roof, it's basically like a week tops to do the whole thing. And so Tesla is definitely going to have to do a lot to kind of bring down that installation time. Um, And they are now hiring like crazy. Uh, They're having open houses to hire roofers and installers (coughs) of this solar glass product uh, in 17 states. And so how much does sort of the solar roof, does it benefit from the, dare I say, sort of glow of the Tesla brand and the Musk brand and and all of that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that the people that are buying this roof tend to be affluent customers who already own the Tesla car. But remember, if you have an electric car, you need to charge it. And chances are that your electric bill goes up quite a bit once you start plugging in a car every night at home. So if you have a car, it's kind of like a gateway drug to going solar (laughs) because solar power makes a lot more sense uh, if you can charge your car in sunlight you get to virtue signal even more, and it, you know it's really sort of a, this beneficial ecosystem. So you're seeing more and more people who have electric cars thinking about going solar. And there is a federal tax credit for solar that covers a, roughly a fourth of the cost of both the materials and, and the installation. Okay, so so Dana, like the the bulls out there, the Tesla bulls out there are like you know it, I think they've you know the stock is way up still. Even today, it's up. Uh, what? What does this mean for Tesla's overall business if they can get this right? So I think that, you know, Tesla, first and foremost, is always thought of as an auto company. They are known for making cars. But from the beginning, they have always talked about the energy side of the business. And people just never really paid much attention to it because, A, it's a small part of revenue, and B, it just never really seemed real. But I think that now in 2020, you're starting to realize see the whole sort of bigger Tesla ambitions come together. And Musk has said several times that the energy side could scale faster than the auto side. And, you know, the solar roofs are just kind of one small part of it. I think the other thing that will be interesting to watch is, you know, where they take the batteries that they've been selling, uh, not just to homeowners, but to utilities. Yeah. How, can I? I'm just curious how big the marketplace potentially, Dana, is for this. It's eighty-three thousand dollars. You said, I for think, the, in your store for the store, power walls. For the yeah. power walls, and I do wonder: is it a, is it a roof you do that lasts for fifty years? Is it something that can make its way across the country, across the world, pretty easily? I think so. I think the challenge. So the. This family in San Ramon, their house is 2,500 square feet. It was $83,000 before the tax credit uh, for the roof and the two power walls, and the warranty is 25 years. Um, You know, I think we're still, in the United States at least, I mean, solar is not a 50-state market. If you live in places where there is a lot of cold weather (laughs) and not a lot of sun, if you're in sort of, you know, in in places like like Michigan, you're not going to see a lot of solar. But certainly in California, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Florida, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential for solar, and uh, you know, here in California, we actually have a rule that a law that was passed that all new home con- 
home construction has to have solar. So there's there's huge potential for it. Mm. Wh- whether Tesla can actually make money doing this remains to be seen. We we're, all we all heard that quick flex, uh, Dan, and we were like, oh, here in sunny California. I don't know what it's like in places where you know it's like cold and stuff. Like New York. I mean, uh, uh, for California to say, yeah, new, huge. That's you know, huge. You're, if you're doing a new I home, you that. need to have a solar solar roof on it and be it tesla or any other things like they they basically incentivize the marketplace to take a look at this right and and backed it up with subsidies and stuff dana when when uh californians um are looking at their options like where where does solar roof kind of come come in on uh the various price points and stuff I think, well, the, so, so, so to be clear, Tesla's solar roof is definitely more expensive than if you just have like a regular roof with standard solar panels. There's no question that you're paying a premium for just like a Tesla car compared to other cars, just like right? the cars. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, there are people that are willing. There, there are plenty of people that are willing that are willing to do that. And uh, you know, I mean, it, and it's interesting. A lot of solar roofs have to be approved by homeowner associations, and so the design and the aesthetics and the architectural value is certainly an issue, particularly in more affluent communities. So, you know, you want a roof that looks good. And I mean, by all accounts, the the Tesla solar roof does look pretty good. But I think that, you know, here in California, people are very worried about blackouts. We've had a lot of issues with PG&E and, uh, you know, rolling, uh, sort of cutting power to people because of the fire danger. And the idea of being able to go off grid and charge your car on sunlight is very appealing. So one of the things that I'm wondering here, and this will be kind of the last thought, Dana, and and it's a big one, is like how close to Tesla accomplishing something that looks like a flywheel Right, like here we we got the cars. Everybody's got that. You've got the roofs that are finally starting to come in. You got the power walls. Like it, it almost feels like they, as crazy as this year has been for the stock, like things are really starting to go their way. If some of these other things come into line, just got about thirty seconds. Yeah, I mean, I think twenty twenty is you're seeing the realization of the of the vision, the original vision of the company, which was to accelerate the advent of sustainable, not transportation, but sustainable energy. Which yeah they're beginning to do in, in big ways. And meanwhile, uh, Tesla shares just go up and up and up. Up 118% this year. Yeah, right. crazy. Well, and just today, uh, up another 6.5%. Dana Hall, thank you so much. Always good to catch up with you. Always something going on in the world of Tesla and Elon Musk. Our thanks, too, to Joel Weber, editor of the magazine, here with us in our Bloomberg. I just love that he keeps Berkeley trying studio. different things and just kind of pushing Oh, I, I thought you were talking about Joel. I was like, yeah, Joel does try new things. I'll He's take credit for that. Good for you, Joel. <laughs> yeah, good for good you, for Joel. You. We're proud of you. It's all Dana. It's all Dana. <laughs> all right. So last year at the Bloomberg Gear Ahead Summit, uh, we caught up with Joel Lasardi, Cureleaf Holdings CEO. We've also... Uh, been lucky to have his executive chairman, Boris Jordan, also on our air. He was named uh, part of the Bloomberg 50. Cureleaf, based in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Joy, Joe joining us from our Boston bureau uh, on this uh, Wednesday. Earlier, he participated in the Cannavest East event. It was on uh, a panel looking at uh, the cannabis business from a multi-state operator perspective. So great to have back with us. Joe, nice to have you here again. Um, tell us a little bit about the panel and what you guys were looking at and how business is going. 
Yeah, it was a great panel. Um, it was an investor-focused panel, and uh, there's a bunch of multi-state operators here in town to talk about their business. And I think, you know, the overall theme is that U.S. cannabis is going to have a huge year this year. There are a number of catalysts on the horizon. You've got um, governors in New York, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania all talking about adult use. Um, it's likely New Jersey will pass an adult use bill in, in the fall along with Arizona. So there's going to be a lot of strong catalysts this year. And, you know, Cureleaf, as the leading company in the space, is really positioned to capitalize on it. So Overall, it was a very positive message and a, and a good day. So positive. I'm curious, do you have an idea of how many states might ultimately see state-level legalization this year? Because I know Florida and New Mexico, they seem to be struggling a little bit with their efforts. Do you have like a number that you've been thinking about? Yeah, I think you'll see, um, you know, Vermont likely will do an adult use um, uh, sales program. You know, states like Mississippi and South Dakota have initiatives on the ballot. So you could see three or four new states for medical and a handful of new states for adult use. Um, Utah just enacted a program. Leaf was fortunate enough to win one of the 14 licenses in Utah. So we'll be entering that state later this year. And um, we're really excited about where the, the country is and the progression of cannabis across the, the states. So, Joe, you guys have been uh, pretty acquisitive, I think. I think it's uh, fair to say a lot of deal making going on in general. Uh, you closed on your acquisition of Select, that obviously was a big deal. Uh, tell us about, if you can, an update on the purchase of Grassroots. I believe that's under federal review or under DOJ review. Yeah, so Grassroots is going to be a very transformative acquisition for the company. It really gets us into key markets, including Illinois, Michigan. Um, they've got a big presence in Pennsylvania and Maryland. Uh, we announced two weeks ago that we cleared the uh, the DOJ review, the HSR hurdle. And so now we're just working with state regulators got to it. transfer the licenses, and we expect to close the deal in the spring. And more deals to come? Well, we're always on the lookout. I mean, we, we, you know, we're not afraid to hit singles. There are a number of states where we already we operate in where we could do some bolt-ons, and we're always looking to deploy capital uh, into a creative acquisition. So um, we're on the hunt and you know, always active. I mean, it feels like given some of the, shall we say, sort of turbulence in the market last year that maybe some of the smaller names could be looking for a way out. Are you seeing people sort of either pitch themselves or bankers pitching a little bit more fervently these days? Yeah, I think the M&A activity will intensify this year. There are definitely a lot of um, small operators that want to um, find a dance partner and, and, and hitch their wagon to some of the bigger players. We did a big capital raise uh, early this year. We did a $300 million raise, and so the balance sheet is well fortified to go out and be opportunistic, and um, we'll, we'll make sure we pick our shots carefully, but it looks like it's a very good year for acquisitions. You and I talked a lot, too, about the vaping scare and you know the impact that that has had on you and, and kind of the industry specifically. Where are we on that? Um, uh, and any of your thoughts in terms of maybe, you know, rolling back any vaping exposure? Yeah, I think it's interesting in that, you know, what that really highlighted was a greater awareness for people about what they put in their bodies. And mm-hmm. so I think we're seeing a, a trend where people are gravitating to the regulated market. And I actually expect the vape category to continue to grow. There's a lot of innovation in, in the sector. There's new products and form factors coming all the time. And consumers have shown a real strong preference for that form factor. So I think it's going to continue to grow. And so as you sort of looked around the uh, the conference, the Canavest East uh, event there in Boston. What was the mood uh, among the participants, especially from the investor crowd? 
Well, I mean, I think certainly there's a big difference between U.S. and Canadian cannabis at this point. I think people understand the decoupling and why the U.S. narrative is so strong. So I think the general mood was that, you know, U.S. cannabis is on the rise. It grew, you know, year over year. And I think, as I said, there's a number of catalysts on the horizon that could really propel the industry. So I thought the mood was overall, you know, positive. It's definitely a um, tough capital raising environment. And so we definitely feel um, that we're in a privileged position with our balance sheet. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there trying to find capital. But overall, Overall, I think the, the, the big macro trends are very positive. Joe, as you know, getting the state approval, that's really cool and all, but the kind of holy grail is getting the federal government to allow weed, right? Because that has certainly, without that, kind of scared off the financial industry, and you need that in order to be able to kind of you know, do financial transactions easily from state to state. So what do you think about federal government signing off on this anytime soon this year? Well, you know, in an election year, it's hard to really predict what happens True. in D.C. And, and, of course, there's some overhang from the, the impeachment stuff. But, you know, what I think is telling is that if you look at even the Democratic presidential field, you know, the, every candidate is, is, you know, pro-cannabis in some form or another. It's, it's quite unpopular to be anti-cannabis at this point. We have 33 states with medical programs. I think we've reached more than a tipping point. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in D.C. I, I will say clearly it's not a partisan issue that, you know, it covers uh, people from both sides of the aisle. So I think it will happen, um, you know, probably in the next 12 to 24 months, worst case. All right. Going to leave it there. Always great to catch up with you. Really appreciate it. Joe Lasardi, he's the CEO of Cureleaf Holdings. He's joining us uh, on this Wednesday from our Boston Bureau. The company, though, based in Wakefield, Massachusetts. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time, is it? Sure. Yeah. Take it. Do it. Do it. All right. It's time for the drive to the close. Eric Clark back with his portfolio manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. He joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Eric, clearly we're both very excited to talk to you. We were fighting over who gets to introduce you. So that's a good sign, right? That never happens. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy it while it lasts. Um, so as you look at this market, how are you feeling about it? I mean, we were talking with our Dave Wilson about the idea that can't quite get our arms around the coronavirus impact yet. And the market seems to be looking for reasons to buy, not to sell. Uh, agree, disagree? What do you make of it? No, agree. I mean, it's it's almost like an any news is good news phenomenon. And it's starting to feel a little bit like January of 2018, when the market just goes up every single day, that's generally not healthy, which, you know, that's that's why I'm a little bit cautious. I've been pretty bullish for a while. But but some of this action, particularly in the high growth momentum areas, is getting a little frothy. And you can see it in sentiment and, you know, looking through through Twitter, um, you know, there, there's just there's there's some euphoria out there and uh, almost bordering on kind of, uh, you know, take risk at uh, at any at any length, because you'll always get rewarded. That always makes me a little cautious. All right. So, what does that mean then for your fund, um, your Rational Dynamic Brands Fund? I mean, uh, it still looks like you're predominantly in equity, but you know, help me out there. I think this was as of the end of January. Is that still the case, or have you pared back on some of your equity exposure? 
No, I have. We, we've done some trimming. Uh, we were as high as 13% cash a couple of weeks ago, and, and that was more of just trimming the weeds, if you will, and, and then I got a chance to add to some of my favorite names, which were not nearly as overheated. So we, we do love to rotate around the, the portfolio, and when things are, are falling and we love the story, we get a chance to add to those names and trim some of the things that are a little extended. All right, so the so, portfolio looks a little bit different now than it did, you know, end of year. All right. So wait, so how much are you in equity? Forgive me. I think I might have missed that. Uh, well, right now we're about 8% in cash. So still 92% or so invested. Okay. But uh, we have a little optionality with that cash and we're still keeping up with the market. So it's it's a little bit of a have your cake and eat it to so, focus here. So talk about the rotation. What did you maybe pair back on? What did you maybe allocate some new money to? Yeah, well, we, we sold and trimmed some of the BABA. BABA was the biggest position. And, um, you know, we just kind of sold some of the names that were very, very exposed to China. Not that we didn't love those names, but, you know, it's an easy place for shorts to, to, start, uh, to start hitting. So we sold, we trimmed some Disney, we trimmed some BABA. Um, we had an underweight in, in Tencent, so I didn't do anything with that one. We trimmed some, some Japan, too, some Sony. And then we rotated around and added to some of the more uh, U.S.-centric names and then some contrarian ideas, too, that have kind of bombed out a little bit. Uh, what were some of the contrarian names? Well, FedEx. Uh, it, it's pretty much been left for dead. Transports have been left for dead. Uh, they, they don't have a relationship with, with, uh, with Amazon much anymore. And, and it's just kind of an underloved, super high-valuable asset play that – that still has, you know, 30% share of the U.S. ground market. And, you know, it wouldn't shock me. That, that's a perfect Warren Buffett type of, of acquisition. They've already done some stuff in the rails. And so that, that one's just well off the highs. And, and Dell has been another one. That's a technology company that's struggled mightily. And, you know, you got $38 billion in market cap with $90 billion in revenues. That's a pretty interesting idea, too, that's well off the highs. Can we talk a little about Lululemon? You still hold that one? Still love Lulu. I mean, I would be shocked if they didn't have a shortfall this quarter. I mean, you know, the biggest part of their growth story is still Asia yeah. and, uh, and China as well. So, I mean, most of those companies are all going to get a pass for at least one quarter with, uh, for sales growth. But it wouldn't shock me if, if they struggled a little bit for the quarter and, and lowered guidance. But then, you know, if the stock goes down, I'll absolutely and happily buy more. Because we trimmed it much, you know, we trimmed it already. Can we go back to FedEx? I'm having a wait what moment. So you're thinking, <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. this is ahead of we've got the Berkshire Hathaway meeting coming up, uh, and so we'll be hearing from Warren Buffett about his thinking about the overall investment environment, maybe what he's doing with his investments. Are you saying that that could possibly be bought by FedEx or or a Walmart? Um, or a Walmart. I, I think if you look, I mean, look what Amazon's done. They've basically created their own logistics. Shopify is is made an acquisition and they're building their own logistics. So, you know, owning the end to end and the delivery part is certainly very valuable. They have a huge international exposure FedEx does. So, you know, it's just a very unloved out of favor sector um, that, that is a very valuable asset. And I love very valuable assets that are unloved and sentiments pretty bad. And now the stock's pretty cheap. So it wouldn't shock me if, there were some buyers out there where they did some other things efficiency-wise or buyback-wise to, uh, you know, to take advantage of the weakness in the stock. 
Talk to me about Spotify. Uh, we've been talking a lot about it recently, in part because uh, one of my favorite uh, podcast networks, the Ringer Podcast Network, uh, Bill Simmons' uh, shop just got bought by Spotify. We had the Gimlet Media guys as part of the Bloomberg mm-hmm, 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spotify going big into the podcast world. Uh, you like this name. Tell me why. I, I love it. It's our biggest holding now, and I added on the on the recent dip. I mean, you know, it, I, I'm a very passionate music person, and mm-hmm. so to me, the the music platform is the best of any platform. But but the audio casting and the podcasting and the content that they're buying that they can ultimately control and have much higher margins with relative to music, that's what I think the street doesn't really uh, really focus on today. Because you know, it's it's what what have you done for me lately? And they are building a really incredible flywheel that over time will show high profitability, great cash flow. And so I think over time, you know, five years, we're going to look back and say, wow, the music was just the entree to what Mm. Spotify really is. There's no reason they can't take some of this great content that they own and then go to a Netflix or an Amazon and start producing video on that content, too. So I think they have a lot of things they could do. And I don't think any of that is priced into the stock. So that's why I love it. All right, Eric, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager at the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. That fund, by the way, is beating just about all of its peers over the past three years, up on average 16% a year over those over that time frame. It's up nearly 27% in the past one year alone. I love his conviction. You know, like, he's got a case. I, I like it when people pick stocks I do too. and then have a very – specific case for why they like them and also he's willing to be like yeah we didn't get that right and talk through the story exactly right you know he's actually you know picking stock so it's really interesting to hear those stories thanks for listening to bloomberg business week you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com you can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m eastern only on bloomberg radio